The KSTE Farm Hour, brought to you in part by Mavento Insecticide from Bayer. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. California's farmers are scrambling to find foreign customers for their produce. Those are goods that were earmarked for China. But with the U.S.-China tariff battle escalating by the day, there's a lot of uncertainty for the state's farmers. We have the details. Southern California's Metropolitan Water District has voted, despite a lot of opposition, to provide most of the financing for California Water Fix, the controversial Delta Tunnels project that has Delta farmers putting their lawyers on speed dial. We've got the latest, along with a reaction from one of that project's biggest critics. The results of late winter and early spring rains may be showing up now as nutritional deficiencies in your tree crops. We talk with an expert on what you should be doing. Rice planting is set to begin in Northern California. The avocado harvest is starting up in Southern California. Yep, things are getting busy in the fields. All this and more on the KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Long-term efforts to build sales of California farm goods in China might suffer from the ongoing trade dispute between China and the United States. Exporters of nuts, wines, and fruit crops that are now facing new tariffs in China say they've been renegotiating contracts with their buyers there. Some products originally destined for China may be redirected to other locations. Exporters say competing products from other countries may now secure a larger foothold in China. On the subject of the announced tariffs by the Chinese targeted at U.S. farm products. It's not nice when they hit the farmers specifically because they think that hits me. President Trump's comments Monday before going into a meeting of his cabinet officials, including Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue, the president telling reporters even though farmers may be the targets of Chinese retaliation for U.S. tariffs, Our farmers are great patriots. They understand that they're doing this for the country, and we'll make it up to them. And so between NAFTA and China and all of the things we're doing, we're going to make them much better than they've ever been. But during this period of time, Sonny Perdue is here. He understands exactly what I'm saying. There'll be a little work to be done. We'll take a little while to get there. Meanwhile, on the current NAFTA renegotiations, which are of great concern to farmers. We're uh, fairly close on NAFTA, and if we don't make the right deal, we'll terminate NAFTA, and we'll make the right deal after that. But the president did not say how that would happen. And a few minutes after the meeting, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue told a conference in Washington. I don't think the president's wanted to lay all his cards on the table, and neither am I. Perdue said he's been asked over and over what the plan is to shield U.S. farmers. His answer? Why should I tell you what I'm going to do if I do it? You know, you'll know. But uh, all I can say is right now, it wouldn't be very prudent to give away uh, our playbook and let China know exactly what uh, our plans are to mitigate what they threaten. But Purdue assured farmers whatever the plan turns out to be. We're not going to allow the agricultural producers to bear the brunt of China's retaliation as we defend our own interests as a nation. Purdue said he's hoping China and the U.S. will negotiate before those tariffs go into effect. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. When you think about cotton farming, California may not pop into your brain immediately. However, acreage planted here in California is about 218,000 acres. Still, that's about half the acreage that was planted in California in 2007. Much of the cotton production in California is centered in Kings County. Still, California's cotton Cotton crop production is ranked 20th in the nation. The state's upland cotton production was worth over $103 million in 2016. However, there's a bit of concern about the 2018 California cotton crop. It's not in the ground yet. Why? Well, you can blame the wet March. 
USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey explains. We have not seen a single acre of cotton yet planted in California, and typically by April 8th, we see more than a sixth of that acreage planted. So California, like the north, uh, seeing a slow start to field work. Of course, the moisture is good in the long run. That will help water supply prospects for that state, but it does make for a slow start to field work. California cotton and cottonseed are major export products as well to China, Saudi Arabia, Korea, India, Turkey, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Mexico. For years, the livestock industry has been promoting the idea of strengthening the nation's vaccine bank for foot and mouth disease as a prep tool in the event of an outbreak. Now, as the Agriculture Department's chief veterinarian, Jack Shear, points out, the last known case of FMD in the U.S. occurred back in 1927. However, the issue, though, is that a lot of viruses are still getting into the United States. There are new pathways, new gaps. We have to be prepared to find those and deal with them. And dealing with FMD becomes problematic for animal health and veterinary medicine professionals and livestock producers in that. Foot and mouth disease is a very scary disease, mainly because it looks like a lot of other diseases that are endemic in the U.S. Which means erring on the side of caution when an animal is discovered to have symptoms that mirror foot and mouth disease. Many large animals, cattle recover from this, they don't die from it, but it's still a problem because some continue to shed the virus, so if we ever get this disease, we have to eradicate it. Swine get this the worst, they're the virus producers, and they cause severe problems. And they are also the ones that have the worst clinical signs. They literally walk out of their feet along their hooves, they get erosions, and they slough off the horny part of their foot, and they walk right out of their feet. It's really a nasty disease to see. FMD containment efforts are broad and significant, including methods such as monitoring, traceability, and quarantines. In extreme cases, vaccination and eradication. Cher has firsthand experience viewing such containment efforts visiting Great Britain during an FMD outbreak over a decade ago. When we were over there, we'd like the fires about 5 o'clock because that was the rules. And it was interesting that in England, they lost more animals from welfare concerns than actually that the disease caused because of halts and stop movements and lack of feed and all the precautions that were put in place to prevent the disease from spreading. Adding to the concerns about FMD is the type of pathogens responsible for creating this disease. There's 24 topotypes, or 24 different strains that could possibly infect cattle and sheep and goats and swine. Cher also understands the significant impacts of FMD from both an animal health and an economic perspective. In the swine industry, they said about 28% of their production is going for export. Now, the minute we have a problem like this, all the other countries say, you can keep that. We don't want it. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Installing hedgerows and cover crops can pay off in the long run for farmers and orchardists. Those flowering plants can attract a wide array of beneficial insects as well as natural enemies, and that's going to cut your pesticide costs. Another benefit of having a row of cool season cover crops installed about every 10 rows in an orchard, the flowering plants in that cover crop can attract native bees, not only do they do some pollinating themselves, but they also help your honeybees become better pollinators. Rachel Long is a UC Cooperative Extension farm advisor based in Woodland. She explains how that works. Probably the, the best impact that they have is, is on the honeybee activity. So when a uh, native bee, like your, your bumblebee or blue orchard bee, kind of, it interacts with the honeybee, they're, they, they, um, it's like there's this uh, sort of a territorial uh, activity that occurs, and and uh, and and then the honeybee kind of forgets what it's doing, and uh, and then it, it disperses, so it crosses over rows. 
And uh, when it crosses over rows, you know, it's it's uh, going to another row. And uh, then you're getting that cross-pollination between uh, different varieties of plants. And the same thing happens in sunflowers for seed production, where you may have a row of male plants and then a row of female plants, and you need that cross-pollination in order to uh, to generate that seed for seed production. And uh, and sometimes the honeybees, you know, they just have a job to do, and they'll just go straight down and collect pollen, or others will go straight down a row and collect nectar. And it's when they uh, interact with uh, a native bee out there that they uh, that you get this territorialism and the territory activity, and uh, and then it pushes the uh, the honeybee around a little bit more, so you get better pollination and better seed set. For more information, do an online search for the USDA publication Enhancing Nest Sites for Native Bee Crop Pollinators. Look for it at the website plants.usda.gov. Here's this week's California crop report. Winter forage crops are maturing well. Alfalfa cutting was stalled by the wet weather. Cotton field preparation and planting is ongoing. Corn fields are prepared and planted in the San Joaquin Valley. Wheat development benefited from March rains. Older vineyards and orchards continue to be pushed out for new plantings. Pear trees were leafing out. Grapevines started bud break. Stone fruit orchards were continuing to leaf out as the bloom period was coming to an end. Pomegranate orchards are being pruned. Mechanical and chemical weed control is ongoing. Olive and cherry trees are blooming. The harvest of late variety navel oranges is ongoing as well. Fruit were showing some grading issues. The Valencia orange and lemon harvests are ongoing. Seedless tangerine groves remain netted for the bloom. Orchard cleanup continues after the heavy spring rains and recent storms. A good set was reported for almonds in many orchards in the San Joaquin Valley. Pistachio leaf out has begun. Early walnut varieties are blooming. Some orchards are being pruned. Catkins were developing on Chandler walnuts. Vegetable fields were being prepared and planted, but activities have been slow due to wet soils. Harvest of broccoli, cauliflower, and some lettuce continue in Salinas. Strawberry harvest continues in Monterey, and the asparagus harvest has begun in San Joaquin County. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture quality continues to improve with the recent precipitation. Sheep grazed on idle corn land, stubble fields, and dormant alfalfa fields. Beehives were moved from almond orchards to olive, citrus, and stone fruit orchards. Bee activity picked up when the weather was favorable. Don't forget, if you miss any portion of the KSTE Farm Hour, you can stream it anytime from the KSTE.com website or the iHeartRadio app. Plus, you can download it at any number of podcast aggregators, including iTunes. And if you like what you hear, please leave a comment. The plan to divert Sacramento River water via huge underground tunnels from Cortland to Tracy is back in the headlines. The Mammoth Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, they have 19 million customers in six counties down there, voted to take a majority stake in the financing of the $16.7 billion California Water Fix project. That's also known as the Delta Tunnels Plan. The vote was 61 to 39% in favor of financing both tunnels instead of a single tunnel. 
Voting no on the proposal were water districts in Los Angeles, San Diego, San Fernando, and Santa Monica, who balked at the hike that local ratepayers would incur, which is estimated to be about $60 per year per household. Previously, many Central Valley farm water districts had declined to participate in the financing, and that included the huge Westlands Water District. Metropolitan agreed to bankroll the farmer's share, putting its total contribution to the project at $10.8 billion. That Southern California agency hopes to sell some of the tunnel's capacity back to the farmers in order to recoup its additional investment. The project is opposed by most environmentalists, Delta landowners, as well as Sacramento area elected officials. Among those leading the opposition, the Delta-based group Restore the Delta. Their executive director, Barbara Berrigan Perilla, says their battle to stop the Delta tunnels is far from over. Look, this is a battle, but this is uh, one of many battles in which will be a very long war. When we started Restore the Delta, we were hoping that we could set things right in three years. I've been at it for 12 years. What this means is we're going to be shifting to a long-term litigation. And uh, ironically, or I, I'm not sure how I feel yet, but this this will probably end up being my life work um, because we have probably a good 10 to 15 year battle on our hands. There's still a water board process going on for the change um, in the uh, point of diversion. That's ongoing. If we do not prevail there and if not enough conditions are slapped on the project by the water board, there will be litigation from that. There's an Army Corps of Engineer uh, permit that still has to be pursued. This is definitely not a slam dunk for them. Talk a little bit about uh, the possibility of more salt intrusion into the Delta if the Delta Tunnels project went through. It's very simple. Um, The major freshwater source in the Delta is the Sacramento River. If you're diverting the Sacramento River into pipes, uh, large pipes, 9,000 cubic feet per second, uh, sometimes the flow in in the Sacramento is less than that. If you're diverting water into those pipes and it's bypassing the Delta, you will have saltwater intrusion from the Bay Area, and you will have the polluted, salty water that comes down the San Joaquin River in greater concentrations in the Delta without freshwater flows. So the impacts from the project will not just be on our surface water use from the Delta. It will intrude into our groundwater basins, uh, making municipal water supplies contaminated, and then creating and, and creating a condition because you have fewer freshwater flows where pollutants, contaminants like selenium, boron, bromides, uh, salts, the methylization of mercury, toxic algal blooms would all increase and proliferate because you wouldn't have the freshwater flows moving through. Many people have concerns about the power of the Metropolitan Water District. A couple of months ago, your group got a public records act that showed that the new director of the uh, Department of Water Resources, Carla Namath, was a Metropolitan Water District employee for five years. Uh, Listen, I am deeply alarmed and believe that there will be challenges based on this information that a regional water district that is supposed to service customers in a certain area is not supposed to have control over the state's entire water system. The Department of Water Resources is a captive agency. 
Was Carla Namath an employee of Metropolitan Water District or was she a consultant? There seems to be a lot of fuzziness no, about that. No, there, there's no confusion. She was an employee of Metropolitan Water District that was loaned out to the Department of Water Resources. And then Metropolitan Water District was reimbursed for her employment by CalFed. When you read through the documents, it becomes clear that her employment was truly evaluated and appraised and appreciated by Metropolitan Water District. They would go to someone like Jerry Merrill, who worked at Resources Agency, and ask for his input. And he'd write back an email like, oh, she met all the objectives of her employment. But they are the people who promoted her. They are the people who moved her up the ladder. They are the people who moved her into that job. Uh, it, same is with their one of their chief engineers, John Benartsky, who's been on loan to the design construction enterprise. He's actually an MWD employee. But DWR actually tried to simply just represent him as someone who worked for DWR. The, the relationship between the two entities is not good for California and is worthy of investigation and needs reform. For those people who think Restore the Delta is basically an environmentalist group, you have many farmers who sit on your board of directors, Delta Area Farmers. What are the farmers' oppositions to the Delta Tunnels project? Their opposition is uh, really not unenvironmental. It's about water quality and quantity for irrigation for their own drinking water wells. Everybody needs clean water. Whether you consider yourself an environmentalist or you're a developer or whether you're a farmer or you run a, a, a Delta recreational business, you boat in the Delta, everybody needs clean water and they need water quality and quantity. That's why Delta farmers understand you have to protect the fisheries. That's why fisheries people work with our Delta farmers. Barbara Berrigan Perilla is the executive director of Restore the Delta. They're online at RestoreTheDelta.org. Barbara, thanks for a few minutes of your time. You're welcome. Take care. Now that April 1st, the unofficial cutoff date for the Western Mountain snowpack season has come and gone, what is the outlook for the region's water supply this spring? USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says it can be divided by thirds, starting with the northern one-third of the region. There is where we are in very good shape heading into the spring and summer. Not only have we had a lot of snow in the mountains, but we've had significant rainfall in some of the valley locations. So soil moisture is good, snowpack is good, reservoirs are for the most part full or at least at an average or above average level, and so we see very few problems. Now moving southward to the middle third of the west, an area stretching from the Sierra Nevada mountains to the central Rockies. Now that middle third had a rather disappointing snowpack season until we got to the end of February, and then we had a fairly dramatic shift into a cooler, wetter pattern that significantly boosted runoff prospects across that middle third of the western U.S. With the primary beneficiary being the Sierra Nevada, which provides much of California's water supply which had a average water content of its snowpack of just four inches in mid-February. That improved to 16 inches, so almost a quadrupling of the snowpack water content in the Sierra Nevada. Dramatic improvement. It was not enough to bring the snowpack up to normal, but that was enough snowpack to significantly improve runoff prospects, which had been previously quite abysmal. And Rippey says despite the strong finish to the snowpack season, parts of the middle third of the western U.S. could face drought by late summer. For the southern one-third of the west, though, 
that's where we have significant problems. Not only are reservoirs already low in Arizona and New Mexico, pretty much statewide, but we had a truly awful snowpack season. We got only erratic and sporadic snowfalls across the southwest. A lot of what did fall has already melted, so we're not expecting much more runoff in those areas. Already, parts of the southwest are experiencing D3 and D4 extreme and exceptional drought conditions. If any drought relief and water supply replenishment comes to the southern one-third of the west, Rippey says that may not occur until July, the start of the traditional monsoon season in the region. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Sacramento Valley rice grower Kurt Richter tells the rice news about the field work that's currently underway, what it takes to prepare a rice field, and the difference in water in his fields from last year to this year. The 2018 rice season has arrived. We are out with tractors getting fields worked up. Uh, it's a much earlier start and a much smoother start this year than we had last year. This field behind me right here this time last year had about a foot and a half of water in it, so you can see it's a very different situation this year. We're starting to disc up some of the weeds from the field being followed for a year uh, and in other areas where we were able to plant rice we're working it up with a chisel uh, just trying to get as many fields opened up as we can right now get the ground opened up and exposed start to dry it out and get it ready for uh, planting which will start here in a few weeks california's rice is a major export among california farm goods among the top foreign markets for california's rice are japan korea and turkey if you love Chinese food, you may already know about Sichuan food, which is one type of Chinese cuisine that is famous for being hot and spicy. There is more to it, though. Kaijun Xiao, who is from Sichuan, reminisces how she introduced a friend to her hometown cuisine's secret ingredient, a peppercorn she calls hua jiao. So I sent her a couple bags from China, and she called me after dinner, and she said, um, excuse me, something is wrong with this peppercorn. It makes our mouth feel weird. It's, we don't know why. We might think it might be poisoning. I'm like, is this making your mouth feeling numbing and buzzling? He said, yeah. I said, what's what hua jiao is? The recent history of Sichuan peppercorns in the United States has been tumultuous to say the least. But this story has a happy ending, especially for people who are seeking out the real thing. It's the soul. It's the soul of Sichuan cuisine. It, you know, you can't call it Sichuan food without the hua jiao. This is Stephanie Ho, and in this week's Agriculture USA, we'll look at Sichuan peppercorns, one unique ag product that went from being banned from importation to restricted to permitted, all within the space of a few decades. You may recognize that music from Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Ballet. It's the Chinese dance played only with flutes by Witch Pond Music and presented on YouTube. The music weaves together an image of China as an ethereal world. Kaijing Xiao says Sichuan peppercorns paint a much earthier picture. Hua Jiao, it's a numbing and buzzling in your mouth. It's very unique. She resorts to Chinese to describe what's going on. The main flavor of Sichuan food is ma la. The Chinese word she mentioned, ma la, has two components. La refers to spicy, as in hot and spicy, but hua jiao is the essential ingredient that creates the sensation of ma. I didn't like it when I was a kid, because I often find it, you know, makes my whole mouth numb. But now I do, and now I can't cook with that hua jiao. For Sichuan food lovers like Xiao, 
This one-of-a-kind spice is irreplaceable, which means it was a hardship when the spice was banned from importation to the United States. In 1967, we published a rule in the Code of Federal Regulations to prevent the entry of citrus canker disease, which is a bacterial disease that attacks citrus fruit and also other botanical species in the same family of citrus. That was Claudia Ferguson, a senior regulatory policy specialist with USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. So it was not really targeted to peppercorn, but because peppercorn is a relative of citrus, at that time, I'm saying a long time ago, 1967, it also became prohibited from the countries that have the citrus canker disease. At the turn of this century, USDA realized that some prohibited commodities were in the country anyway and sent inspectors out to find them. From 2002 to 2006, Sichuan peppercorns were the number one banned spice that officials found in the marketplace. However, we didn't find the citrus canker in the commodity that was being seized. So that's why Sichuan peppercorns went from being prohibited to being restricted. And the restriction was that if the Sichuan peppercorn will be treated for 10 minutes at temperature 140 degrees Fahrenheit or above, that that will definitely kill the possibility that that might have a citrus canker bacteria. Wait, though, the story is not over. There was a further reevaluation, and the restrictions were completely lifted after authorities realized that the peppercorns shipped to the United States are dried out, not fresh. We have a miscellaneous and processed product manual in which we provide regulatory guidance for offices at the port of entry, and it's specifically for miscellaneous products and processed products. So because of that, our policy for Shea peppercorn is found in this import manual. She says the policy is aimed at keeping out the disease, not the commodity itself. The policy is also based on a regulation that was published in 2007 in which dried fruit will be allowed entry without a permit and without a phytosanitary certificate. After decades of uncertainty, Sichuan peppercorns are allowed into the United States as long as they're dried and as long as they've been declared which means that Sichuan food lovers or visitors like Xiao, who couldn't find the peppercorns when she attended school in the United States in 2006, will have a much easier time finding them. There's no substitute. There's no absolutely substitute for Huajiao. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Stephanie Ho with the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Avocado growers in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties have their fingers crossed for an outstanding crop in 2018. Ventura County avocado grower Dave Schaubauer told the California Farm Bureau Federation that the harvest is already underway. We've already been doing early picking of the groves, uh, size picking, going through and picking all of the big fruit off, um, allowing the other fruit that's left on the tree to grow. It's, we're a little bit behind the schedule given the rains that we're having, but we're not going to complain about the rain at all. Connor Huser of Mission Produce says avocado growers need to pay close attention to the size of the avocados that they're picking. This is a very experienced crew, but they're doing a size picking here, and a size 48, which is kind of the, I'll say the universal standard size in the avocado world, is from 7.5 ounces to 9.5 ounces. And so these guys are targeting 48s and larger, but we've told them to do 8 ounces and larger just for, you know, 
little buffers on there to ensure that they're only harvesting 48s. And it could very well be a long avocado picking season stretching into the summer. And that raises its own concerns, according to Santa Barbara County avocado grower Russell Doty. But technically, you can leave avocados on the tree for a long time and pick um, when it suits you. Uh, depending on your variables and in summertime the big variable is, is when you're getting the hot weather how hot is it um, are the uh, how well taken care of are the trees or have you had a good good enough rain year so that they can sustain holding the fruit is labor going to be available to pick it when you're ready to pick um, I know people have struggled with that Avocado growers are looking forward to a 2018 crop projected at about 375 million pounds. That's up from 215 million pounds last year. California grapefruit production has been declining over the years. Still, last year saw a 20% increase in agricultural exports to other countries of grapefruit. Why is that? A big decline in grapefruit production in Florida. The USDA's Gary Crawford tells us why. We tend to report mainly on the Florida orange crop and how citrus greening and such has brought production down by 35% this year, 45% from the year before. But the same thing's been happening to Florida's grapefruit production. In fact, the cuts in production are even more severe than oranges. We're down 48% from previous year and 63% from two years ago. USDA's Florida statistician Mark Hudson this week, USDA lowering its previous forecast for Florida's grapefruit crop by 14% down to 4 million boxes. Again, Hudson says citrus greening has hit grapefruit plus there was Hurricane Irma. The wind whipped around and it really it really kind of hurt them a lot of stuff uh, that, that would go for fresh market because the wind scarring had to go what's called eliminations or be processed for fruit. Besides the hurricane and greening, growers may be cutting some production on purpose. Grapefruit popularity among consumers is dropping. 40 years ago, the average American consumed as fresh fruit and juice 24 pounds worth of grapefruit. By 2014, that was down to only about 5 pounds. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Farmtown Strong, a campaign launched by the American Farm Bureau Federation and National Farmers Union seeks to address the rural opioid epidemic. Statistics show that in 2016, opioids were responsible for more than 42,000 deaths, more than the number of people who died from gun-related violence or motor vehicle accidents that year. AFBF's Ray Atkinson says opioid addiction in rural farming areas is a major concern. Our country is in the midst of an opioid overdose epidemic. Every day, 115 Americans die from an opioid overdose. And it's not just a big city problem. Three in four farmers are or have been directly impacted by opioid abuse, and three in four say it would be easy for someone in their community to access prescription painkillers illegally. The joint campaign offers resources through its website for rural residents impacted by opioid addiction. Farm Bureau and Farmers Union have developed a Farm Town Strong website at farmtownstrong.org that has confidential hotline numbers and links to local treatment programs, treatment centers, and physicians authorized to treat addiction. There are also prevention resources and information on how and where to dispose of unwanted medications. Just go to farmtownstrong.org and click on Get Help Now. Atkinson says rural communities must come together to overcome the epidemic. It's really important for people to talk with their friends and family if they or a family member are dealing with addiction. This problem is too big for anyone to solve alone, and we know that what farmers do best is pitching in to help farmers in times of need. Rural communities are strong, and the strengths of our towns can overcome this crisis. Michael Clements, Washington. 
Potassium, zinc, iron, manganese, nutrient deficiency symptoms may manifest themselves as yellowing leaves in a whole host of crops, including almonds, peaches, and plums. Well, what's going on? Why are there these deficiencies that are causing yellowing leaves? And what can you as an almond grower or a deciduous fruit tree grower do about them? We're talking with Joseph Connell. He's the Butte County Farm Advisor Emeritus. And Joe, I, I guess it, it really has to do with the time of the year that going uh, from a wet winter to a wet spring, well, things are just slowed down and unavailable. Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, what's happening is that, you know, with the kind of rainfall we've had, uh, it's kept the soils uh, colder than usual and, and in some cases saturated, depending on where the orchard's located, um, on heavier soils or in areas where the drainage is not as good. Uh, that makes it more difficult for root activity to pick up in the spring. And so you can get um, transient micronutrient deficiencies that manifest themselves as pale color in the leaves or intervenal yellowing, that sort of thing. Is it a case of a lack of these micronutrients in the soil or just the inability of the tree to take them up? Well, I think most of the time it's probably just the inability of the tree to pick them up because the soils are, are wet and cold. Uh, and in some cases, it might be related to root health. You know, if uh, an orchard has had areas that have been saturated for too long, uh, we could have lost some of the uh, root system due to, due to that uh, water logging condition or saturation or flooding in some cases. Uh, those sorts of things might make it more difficult to recover. But if the soils had pretty good drainage um, in the past and, and was not saturated for an excessive period of time, then these deficiencies probably will be transient, and when it dries out and warms up, a lot of them will correct. And let's talk about identifying those yellowing leaves, because not all yellowing is created equal. It could be a case of chlorosis, or I guess it could even be a nitrogen deficiency. Yeah, that's right. I mean, certainly we could have some nitrogen deficiency, although that's the easiest thing to correct. So, so most of the time we don't see too much of a problem with that, because most of our fertilization would take care of that. But we do see uh, intervenal chlorosis with uh, manganese deficiency that, that's often related to uh, wet soils and cold soils, uh, lack of root activity. And then we'll see iron deficiency quite often in, uh, in wet soils in the spring. Uh, it's also noted for, for showing up in high pH soils, but if you have a soil that's a little bit high in pH and normally isn't a problem, but you have a wet saturated soil profile, then you might see iron deficiency. And that'll be uh, uh, yellowing between the veins, and the iron deficiency will show little tiny green veins in between the yellow areas. And if it gets very severe, sometimes the whole leaf will bleach out and turn kind of yellow. What are the telltale symptoms of a manganese deficiency? Uh, manganese deficiency is, is noted for having what we call a herringbone pattern where the main veins in the leaf will stay green, but the areas between the main veins will be yellow. So you'll have, have this yellow chlorotic uh, herringbone pattern in the leaf, and the tiny veins will go ahead and bleach out and be yellow, whereas in iron, uh, the tiny veins will usually stay green. And in a lot of situations, uh, the first mistake a lot of growers may make is, well, I need to add iron to the soil when that may not even be necessary. Well, I think that's right. And a lot of times, you know, if the soil is just cold and wet, um, uh, foliar sprays will correct this problem. So you can put on a foliar treatment that the leaves will pick up right away and it'll, it'll green up the leaves in the case of uh, iron symptoms or 
potassium deficiency is another problem that we can see uh, in a cold, wet soil, and that causes leaf rolling and marginal burning on the leaves up in the top of the tree usually, uh, and, uh, and foliar nutrient sprays of potassium nitrate can correct that. And what's interesting, too, that you pointed out in the article you posted at the Sacramento Valley Orchard Source on potassium, zinc, manganese, and iron deficiencies in a wet spring is how much of those nutrients are removed at harvest time. It's it's rather amazing that 60 to 80 pounds of potassium, for example, are removed for every 1,000 pounds of almond kernels that are hauled to the hauler. Yeah, that's right. Potassium is uh, what we call a macronutrient, and and. The macronutrients, of course, are nitrogen, potassium, and, and uh, phosphorus, and so uh, those are needed in larger amounts, and we do export quite a bit of potassium each year with the crop that goes uh, to the huller, uh, both in the hulls and, and in the kernels mostly, a little bit in the shells. Um, but that's something that we might have to you know, add on a more regular basis to replace the potassium that is used by the tree and is exported with the crop. In the case of the other um, micronutrients, they're just needed in small amounts, very often just in parts per million uh, in a leaf analysis. And so it doesn't take very much of those to uh, meet the tree's needs. So we're not exporting very much in the way of micronutrients each year. Uh, and consequently, unless you're in a spot where they're really, truly deficient, um, uh, most of the time the soils will provide uh, the micronutrients that are needed. With a potassium deficiency, I'm sure the leaves will probably get more pale, but what are some other telltale signs of a potassium deficiency? Probably the most uh, noted symptom of potassium deficiency is what we call a, a rolling of the leaf. The edges roll up and then you'll get marginal leaf burning around the edges of the leaf and on the leaf tip. And that will often show up in the top of the tree on the new shoots in the leaves that are in about the middle of the new shoots up in the treetop. And uh, that's a kind of a classic potassium deficiency symptom. And there's some varieties of almonds that will show that more readily than others. Uh, the Butte variety, for example, is a real good indicator of, of potassium deficiency because it will show that leaf scorching and burning when other varieties in the same orchard might not show that symptom. Now, I would imagine, too, that if you are trying to correct a potassium deficiency with, with a foliar spray, you, you need to apply a, a goodly amount of material. Yeah, that's right, because it is a macronutrient, it's needed in larger amounts, and um, typically, you know, with most of the sprays these days, uh, the growers will be applying about 100 gallons per acre of water in a constant, what we call a concentrate spray, and with that, you can put in maybe 20 pounds of potassium nitrate, and uh, that will help to uh, green up the tree and correct a, a transient deficiency. Uh, a true deficiency, uh, it's going to require more potassium than that, but that will help quite a bit if it's just a cold, wet soil issue. I would think for any of these deficiencies, too, it, it behooves the grower to refer back perhaps to some leaf analysis that they had done the previous summer. Yeah, that's right. The leaf analysis uh, that we normally recommend doing in July is a time when uh, the, the nutrient levels are at kind of a plateau, so we can compare them to our standards. And if uh, a grower had a leaf analysis from last July, you could look at that and see if anything was really and truly marginal or deficient. And if so, uh, that could explain why you might see symptoms this year, and then you'd need to correct it. If everything looked good last July, uh, then you're probably just seeing symptoms that might just be related to to the wet soils and the lack of oxygen in the soil and, and root activity that's not at, at full uh, strength yet. 
So growers could probably expect a potassium deficiency if that July leaf analysis was, what, below 1%? Yeah, 1% is our critical value for potassium in our, in our leaf analysis in July. So if it was at 1% or below, we'd expect to see some of the leaf symptoms that I described. Um, if potassium is above 1.4%, we consider that adequate and, and probably not uh, no additional potassium would be needed. You can kind of use that previous leaf analysis to get an idea of what's going on this spring, too. And I guess with the zinc, uh, a leaf analysis would be, what, below 15 parts per million would be a deficiency? Yeah, that's right. Uh, for zinc, the critical value uh, is 15 parts per million. So if you were below 15 parts per million last July, then uh, that would suggest that, that a, a zinc application would be beneficial. And very often we'll correct that with a fall spray of uh, zinc sulfate maybe in late October or early November. And because it's only needed in parts per million, that will usually fix it and take care of the problem. And then I guess when it comes to soil pH, it's the iron and manganese deficiencies that are going to show up on really alkaline soils, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. And actually, zinc will uh, will show up on an alkaline soil as well. So uh, you can get uh, get all of uh, all of those nutrients being deficient if you have maybe an old corral site, or if you have soils that are high in pH. You'll you'll see those micronutrient uh, deficiencies a lot of times in just areas within an orchard. Maybe not the whole orchard, but certainly in some areas. And so then you might need to focus your correction uh, on those areas if it's a limited spot. And I guess for a lot of growers, uh, the easiest course of action is just wait for the soil to warm up and dry up a little bit and see if the symptoms persist. Yeah, I think that's a good approach, especially with something like manganese and iron, because those are things that uh, don't have a real uh, immediate effect on something like yield. So you can kind of be patient and see what happens, and it's probably not going to be a, a, a real big negative effect on, on production. Joseph Connell is the Butte County Farm Advisor Emeritus. For more information about yellowing leaves regarding potassium, zinc, manganese, and iron deficiencies, check out his page at the Sacramento Valley Orchard Source website. That's sacvalleyorchards.com. And Joe, thanks for a few minutes of your time today. Okay, Fred, it was my pleasure. I did to talk to you, too. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour, heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.